0: that is what motivates a substantial proportion of human activity it's not the rational pursuit of truth it is a persistent effort to manage death anxiety by maintaining confidence in our beliefs and our self-worth and because of that whenever our belief in reality or our self-worth are threatened Or whenever existential anxieties are present, that we will automatically engage in a host of defensive maneuvers to restore psychological equanimity.
1: Hello and welcome to Planet Critical, the podcast for a world in crisis. My name is Rachel Donald. I'm a lecturer, a climate corruption reporter and your host. Every week I interview experts who are battling to save our planet. My guests are scientists, politicians, academics, journalists and activists. They explain the complexities of the energy, economic and political crises that we face today, revealing what's really going on and what they think needs to be done. This is a critical time for our planet. It demands critical thinking. Go to planetcritical.com to learn more and subscribe. My guest this week is Sheldon Solomon. Sheldon is a professor of psychology at Skidmore College, where he's been researching the effect of the uniquely human awareness of death on behavior. He's written books about this death anxiety. There was also a documentary made on his research, Flight from Death, the Quest for Immortality. And he joins me today to bring all of these strands together. I am so excited to present you with this episode. Sheldon talks about the psychology of the Anthropocene, the psychology of the crisis, saying very quickly on in the episode that we are drenched in death right now and that having death on our mind drives our consumption and our disordered behaviour, which, of course, is causing the climate crisis. We discussed the role of imagination in understanding the big picture, the link between death awareness and self-awareness, individuality, the importance of re-embedding culture in the here and now how cultural beliefs are used to anaesthetise death anxiety to manage it, and how the Western culture that we've exported around the world has the ironic effect of exacerbating that very anxiety that it's trying to solve. This is an episode about the fact that human beings need to learn how to die, and that in refusing to do so, we've become so dislocated, so isolated from ourselves, from our environment. We are causing our own death, and the death of the very many species we share this planet with. This episode is littered with knowledge, with references, with insight and with the warning that if we do not wake up and dare to dream, we will walk like zombies off the cliff. I hope you all enjoy the episode. If you do, please share it far and wide. If you're loving the show, support Planet Critical with a paid subscription at planetcritical.com. By signing up, you'll also get access to the weekly article I write inspired by each interview. Thank you to everyone who has signed up and is supporting the project. I'm a vehement believer in ad-free and open access content, so Planet Critical wouldn't exist without the direct support of the amazing community. Thank you so much to all of you who keep the project going every week. Sheldon, thank you so much for joining me on Planet Critical. It is a real pleasure to have you on the show.
0: Well, thank you. It is my pleasure also, Rage.
1: Could you just uh, repeat what you said just before we came on air um, about what you were the two books that you're reading in your different classes, just to show you know the intersectionality of all of this work?
0: Yeah, no, uh, uh, certainly I'd be delighted. Um, I was happy to be asked to uh, come exchange ideas on the, this podcast to begin with. Just from the title of uh, the enterprise, <laughs> I knew that this was uh, timely and important. And then when I went on and saw the people that. Uh, you've been uh, talking with just previous guests on the podcast. I was like, this is quite amazing. Um, Mm -hmm. You're doing the same thing in your podcasts that I'm trying to do in my classes. So we're reading uh, the Ministry for the Future in Mm -hmm. a class that I'm teaching about the psychology of the Anthropocene. And we're reading uh, AG barkey's book on denial in my evolutionary psychology ventures and uh, so from my perspective uh, i can't think of anything more timely and important and i can't think of a more effective vehicle to disseminate mm-hmm. ideas widely and effectively than what folks like you were trying to do i, I mean to be silly um, I like the work that I do, and what I tell people is, if you're having trouble sleeping, I'll send you some of our experiments, and now <laughs> there'll be non-pharmacological interventions for insomnia. Maybe it's interesting <laughs> and even important work, um, but the, right now, I think it's imperative that these ideas all be uh, as widely distributed as possible to as diverse a group of humans on the planet as is possible. And my hope is that this is the best way to do it. I'm just I'm not seeing any more just rich bodies of knowledge than on but podcasting kinds of ventures like Mm -hmm. the ones that you're doing. So anyway, I'm delighted and eager to be here today.
1: Oh wonderful. Yeah, you know, it's interesting. I was having this debate with a friend the other day. Um, he's, a, he's an engineer and a theoretician. And he was saying, yeah, but like, you know, you don't, you don't go out and do all of this research. And you don't always, you know, have time to read all of the books. You know, isn't that, quite, isn't that quite dangerous then in sort of the information that you're putting forth? And I said, well, unlike the anonymous peer-reviewed system, what I'm trying to do is like build relationships with people. And then based on the relationship that I build with that person, based on who they are as an individual, who they are as a human being, I will then establish, okay, I trust this person and I trust their expertise. So I'm going to build that into my understanding of the big picture and take it forward because I don't have time to go out and I'm not an expert in any one thing. And I see my role more as, you know, the person that jumps about the ecosystem, trying to tie tie bits together and, as you said, try to communicate to a wider audience.
0: Yeah, well, I, I like that. I, I I don't mean this disparagingly, but I see you as like a giant interneuron uh, making connections, and of course uh, there is a, a danger of being misled. Uh, but this is true in any domain, and uh, mm. there are two things that I think are advantageous. One yeah. is that uh, you have the insight and humility to recognize the possibility that you might be wrong or misled. And I suspect Mm -hmm. the integrity that if you discover that that's the case, that you're going to make that known to the people that you're serving. And then, well, my sense is that if there's anything that's just wildly discrepant from reality, that that would be evident by just stepping back and looking at mm-hmm. all of the folks that you've been engaged with and perhaps just noticing that here and there is something that's glaringly out of line uh, with the consensus mm-hmm. of the variety of people that you're appealing to. And so, yes, we're all underqualified to mm-hmm. be <laughs> making authoritative judgments about problem so vast that mm. uh, we need to begin by stipulating uh, that we'll never know the answers, and that there's not one particular way to proceed. Um, but for me, that's just grounds for humility, uh, mm. not any justification to uh, you know withdraw from the doing what you're doing confidently and forcefully.
1: Hmm. Yeah, I think the the easiest sort of way for me personally to decide how and if to engage with people is if they say, <laughs> if anybody says they've got the solution or it boils down to this one thing immediately, just like, nope, sorry, this platform is not for you. Like the problem is uh, systemic. And nice. everyone I speak to I res- who I respect says that, you know, We just cannot focus on one single part. That's the whole point of what makes this crisis so complex.
0: That's correct. Compounded by the fact that evolutionarily, we're kind of designed to just focus on one thing. Mm -hmm. Uh, You know, in other Mm -hmm. words, I I think, uh, you know, and here we're kind of wandering into um, Mm -hmm. territory that you might have covered uh, with Ajit Vargi in the denial book, most creatures uh, you know, we're designed by billions of years of evolution to, you know, kind of metaphorically keep our noses sniffing the ground. In other words, mm-hmm. uh, you know, if the purpose of, of being here from an evolutionary perspective, well, there is no purpose. Life is just exists. Uh, and, you know, in order to stay alive, um, we, we need to do certain things and, um, you know, for human beings, um, it has a lot to do with not paying attention to what's going on around us in the overall scheme of things. In other words, like most animals, uh, we are quite aware of and responsive to, uh, immediate threats, uh, and, but. You know, doing that uh, renders it quite difficult to step back and to imagine what might or might not be happening at some vaguely unspecified future moment. And I think that's part of what makes our current circumstances um, so difficult to imagine. Uh, You know, there's other factors, including that, you know, we're by nature, you know, violent and tribal creatures that tend to be naturally antagonistic towards other folks who don't share our view of the world. Uh, But just as kind of like a global statement of where we stand, uh, just psychodynamically, I think we're in an awkward position on the one hand, you know, we've got this massive forebrain that at times allows us to step back as, you know, Daniel Kahneman won a Nobel prize at Princeton, uh, for his description of the human mind as being, uh, two systems, you know, a fast automatic one that's intuitive and, um, and d- that definitely keeps us alive, but is prone to error and confusion. And then we have this, uh, what he calls slow thinking, a more rational, detached, uh, self-reflective mindset. And and, this does, at our best, allow us to step back, to think rationally, to learn from our mistakes. Yeah, but that requires effort, attention, and and knowledge. Uh, And so... Here we are, for the most part, at our best, under optimal circumstances. We can, as human beings, step back and say the planet is in perilous condition. Um, It is a problem that we need to all solve at the local level, while at the same time simultaneously recognizing our complete interdependence on every other person on the planet. And that nothing of value will happen in the absence of rather global structural change. Yeah, but that's basically, um, and and again, we, quote, know that. I think everybody, quote, knows that. And I think what's harder to understand is why it's so difficult uh, to get most folks to agree that this is the case and then to act on that knowledge in a responsible way and, and uh, my view based on our work is that the reason is that uh, most of us and this will sound uh, uh, derogatory and judgmental but i'm going to include myself here uh, most of us um no, when on um, existential anxieties are in the air. And right now we're drenched in death, you know, between the pandemic and the planet burning and the political polarization and the, uh, the, the, the massive instability of a global, um, of essentially of the free market capital based uh, economic system. Well, That keeps the average individual in our world, whether they're aware of it or not, uh, in a persistent state of existential apprehension. To be more blunt, but it makes us to varying degrees poignantly aware of the inevitability of our own death, conscious or not. And and what our research has uh, suggested is that when death is on our minds, Even if you don't know it, we can flash the word death on a computer screen, you know, 30 milliseconds or so, so fast that uh, you don't even know that you've been exposed to anything. And uh, when death is on your mind, um, it creates a host of undesirable consequences, for example. Uh, when death is on our mind, uh, we really like people in our tribe, but we really hate and will even harm or kill people with different beliefs. Uh, when death is on our mind, um, we tend to be oh, very attracted uh, to certain kinds of political leaders and, and uh, that we oh, would call charismatic or populist leaders. So Hitler gets elected. Mm. Uh, saying that he's going to make Germany great again. And and he was elected without Russian interference. And now uh, with uh, the pervasive reminders of death in the air, uh, we see populist regimes all over the planet uh, taking over. But uh, this is problematic because there's a relationship between populist and authoritarian governments and resistance to effectively managing concerns about the environment. You know, when we remind people they're going to die, they deny that people are animals. They're more uncomfortable in nature. It turns us all into mindless consumers of money and stuff. When we're reminded Mm -hmm. that we're going to die, if you like cookies, you eat more of them, alcohol, you drink more tobacco, Mm -hmm. uh, you smoke more. And then finally... Uh, when death is on our minds, that amplifies all pre-existing psychological disorders. Um, and so, uh, if you're afraid of snakes, you become more afraid of snakes. If, if you're obsessive and compulsive, you wash your hands more and spend uh, more time, uh, keeping yourself clean. If you're socially anxious, uh, you hide in the closet more. And, and so the, the point is, is, Here we are at what I think is kind of a crossroads of human history. Not that there haven't been other ones, but there's never been this historical confluence of like war, political instability, economic vulnerability on top of uh, impending ecological apocalypse. And so here we are, you know, just marinated. In depth reminders, and what we know from our research is well, then that 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 turns us into depressed, demoralized proto-fascists, plundering the planet in our insatiable desire for dollars and dross, in like an alcohol, oxycodone, TikTok, twittering stupor, and this is um, not a great position to be in. Uh, This is the moment where it would be best as a species to step back and to collectively reflect on where we stand. And it's at the precise moment that we're least equipped to do that, because it's well known that when we are in a state of existential distress, that, that essentially lobotomizes us. But that—that's what totalitarian leaders are great at. Hannah Arendt, the great uh, philosopher of yesteryear, in her book on the origin of totalitarianism, she's like, look—it's a—it's a standard playbook. A populist leader takes over, and, and they lobotomize their followers by infusing them, uh, w- by by turning their fears into anger. And directing it towards an external scapegoat in order to deflect attention from the fact that they rarely care for their constituents and are exploiting them economically in collusion with corporate entities. Uh, and so uh, it's really a, a vulnerable position for uh, us to be in right now, uh, you know, we need as much clarity as possible. But um, we can understand why it's perilously difficult to create circumstances that are conducive to that.
1: I, and I'm sure many other people, well, I have always understood imagination as this capacity for creating possibilities, creating the unknown and yep. thereby sort of dealing with the unreal yep. and perhaps I had to make the unreal real. But as you were talking, um and talking about what our sort of evolutionary like psychology is adapted for i.e understanding immediate threats immediately it came to mind that actually we need imagination in order to stand back and grasp the big picture because we don't actually have the capacity to quote-unquote see it for what it is it must be an act of imagination in concurrence with seeing reality
0: yeah absolutely and um I'm not sure what to add to that. That's quite brilliant. I, I like how uh, Otto Ronk, who was one of Freud's disciples, and uh, Ernest Becker, the cultural anthropologist from whom our work is drawn, uh, always um, leans on Ronk, who's like, look, only humans make the unreal real. I like that mm-hmm. little nugget. Mm-hmm. And That's because of our imagination. The the capacity to imagine allows us to plan for the future uh, by thinking about different possible outcomes, and that's a good way of keeping us alive. That's called prospective imagination. It also allows Mm -hmm. us to fathom things that don't even exist yet, and then to make them real, like da Vinci Mm -hmm. drawing pictures of helicopters uh, in the 1500s. And that's all magnificent. And and I also like how the Danish existential philosopher Soren Kierkegaard uh, talked about imagination as it being uh, one of the things that uh, allows us to realize that we ourselves exist. Kierkegaard was like, you're so smart Mm -hmm. that you know that you're here. Uh, We actually imagine our own existence, which we take for granted for the most part, because that's just the way that we're organized. I wake up in the morning and I often say to myself, "Um, here I am, I woke up and I'm walking to my office and I'm like, wow, here I am walking to my office. And then I can even keep thinking, here I am walking to my office, thinking about, then I'm walking to my office. And the point that Kierkegaard makes is twofold. One is, is that it takes a ridiculously sophisticated cognitive apparatus to render yourself the object of your own subjective inquiry. All right, English translation, a rosebush is here, but doesn't necessarily know it. You know, a raccoon is here, but doesn't necessarily know it. But we're here and we know it uh, and Kierkegaard goes on to point out that, uh, if you're here and you know it, then you're going to necessarily experience two uniquely human emotions that he calls awe and dread respectively. Uh, and, uh, and then it's like, he's like, Hey, let's remember that it is awesome to be alive. And to know it and, and to recognize that for many of us, that our our, mo- our finest moments when we feel most keenly aware of and appreciative of being alive are not necessarily the culturally constructed ones. In other words, yeah, we love it when we graduate from school or get married or, or celebrate holidays, and, and uh, that is cause uh, for joy. But so, too, is waking up on a fine day and getting a face full of fresh air and maybe appreciating that there's some dew on a leaf glimmering in the sunlight or passing somebody randomly on the street. And just that little nod of acknowledging the existence of a fellow human being where you're just like it was great to be alive, where we're just literally joyously wallowing in the spontaneous exuberance of life itself. And and I torment my students uh, over here to uh, get them to read James Joyce's book, Ulysses, you know, giant book, and we all have it on our bookshelves. Most of us keep it or use it to keep our cars from rolling backwards on (laughs) hills. But if you ever do get to read it, You know, the last 50 pages of the book, it's the longest sentence in English literature, no capital letters, no punctuation, but the sentence begins and ends uh, with the same word. Yes, it is great to be alive. And I'm saying that in part to remind myself uh, because it is too easy to forget how awesome it is to simply be here. Because of the dreadful counterpoint that Kierkegaard goes on to note, uh, when he uh, points out that uh, as uh, that unless you're a child or an idiot, if you're smart enough to know that you're here, uh, you're also intelligent enough to realize that, like all living things, your life is of finite duration. uh, That uh, and you too will someday die. Uh, Moreover. You realize that not only will you die someday, but your death can occur for reasons that you could never anticipate or control. And then finally, just to knee us in the psychological groin, Freud and other folks like him point out that we don't like the fact that we're embodied animals, just respiring pieces of defecating meat, uh, born in a time and place not of our choosing. Uh, where we're here for an infinitesimally small amount of time before we're summarily uh, obliterated. And that from the overall scheme of things, we're no more significant or enduring than lizards or potatoes. And the point Mm -hmm. that we make in our work based on the cultural anthropologist Ernest Becker is that if that's all you thought about, which in fact is the reality of the human condition. I'm going to die someday. I can walk outside and get hit by a comet or a plague. Uh, You know, I'm a breathing piece of meat, a cold cup with an attitude. Uh, And uh, I'm just not going to be here forever that we wouldn't be able to stand up in the morning. We would be so debilitated with tidal waves of existential dread Uh, that we would literally be twitching blobs of biological protoplasm, cowering under our beds, groping for rather large sedatives. And so this raises the question of, well, how is it do we uh, make it through the day? And from an existential perspective, uh, according to Ernest Becker, it's because of culture, uh, which is defined as humanly constructed beliefs about reality that we share with our fellow humans that minimizes death anxiety by giving us each a sense uh, that we're persons of value in a world of meaning. Uh, uh, Cultures provide each of us with an account of the origin of the universe, with a prescription for how we're supposed to behave while we're here uh, with some hope Mm -hmm. of immortality, either literal or symbolic uh, for those who behave in accord uh, with cultural dictates, and, and so according to this um, uh, perspective, whether we're aware of it or not, uh, we spend most of our moments trying to maintain confidence in our culturally constructed belief systems, as well as faith in our value, uh, which, for Becker and for what we call terror management theory, is is essentially self esteem. And that—that that is what motivates a substantial proportion of human activity. It's not the rational pursuit of truth. It is a persistent effort uh, to manage death anxiety by maintaining confidence in our beliefs and our self-worth. And because of that, whenever our belief in reality or our self-worth are threatened, or whenever existential anxieties are present, that we will automatically engage in a host of defensive maneuvers uh, to restore psychological equanimity. And so that's why I I mentioned earlier in our research, when, when we ask people to imagine themselves dying, sometimes we just say, hey... Uh, What are your thoughts and feelings about your own death? Sometimes we go outside the lab and we stop people either in front of a funeral parlor or a hundred meters to either side. Our thought being that if we stop you in front of a funeral parlor, death is on your mind, whether you know it or not. And then um, we also have a paradigm where we have people read things on a computer while we flash the word death so rapidly, like. 30 milliseconds that you can't even see anything. And again, as I mentioned earlier, when death is on your mind, we hate people who are different. We tend to love uh, charismatic populist leaders. We deny that we're animals. We trash the natural environment. We become mindless consumers uh, with insatiable desires for money and stuff. And this also amplifies uh, all of our pre-existing psychological disorders, and so, um, and this is why we propose uh, that um, that that there are unfortunate consequences of malignant manifestations of death denial, and, and this is why we believe that it is important for us as individuals as well as collectively in the context of our culture, to be able to step back uh, and to reflect in the service of uh, Albert Camus' uh, injunction to each of us when he said, come to terms with death. Thereafter, uh, anything is possible. And, And what that suggests to us is two different simultaneous roots uh, to managing death anxiety, one is for each of us at the very personal level um uh you know ever since there's been people um uh, most religious and philosophical traditions uh emphasize the that you have to learn how to die in order to be able to know how to live. I like Abraham Lincoln on our side of the pond, the only Republican that I've ever voted for in america when he said uh, it is not the years in your life it's the life in your years and and i like that and i like it like the tibetan book of the dead or socrates saying to philosophize uh, is to learn uh, how to die and we can see right now uh throughout the world uh, that Uh, there are lots of efforts to help us move in that direction. And so for most of human history, it was in the context of our religious belief systems that uh, we were assisted as individuals uh, in our personal quest to come to terms with our own mortality. Uh, But we're seeing those um, the, the, those social forces expand uh, into the secular realm. And this is not to denigrate religious efforts to assuage uh, death anxiety, but uh, we're also seeing like death cafes, death positive movements uh, throughout the world, just spaces uh, where people can get together, and talk about their own concerns uh, about their mortality. And there uh, is research now uh, suggesting uh, that this can be quite powerful, uh, that uh, serious and protracted efforts to come to terms with death, which is very different than walking past a funeral home, and then kicking somebody in the face because they look different than you, uh, that that does uh, have uh, really beneficial effects in terms of rendering us uh, happier and more pro-social. And and so from positive psychology right now, uh, we have bodies of research saying that uh, when we're at our best, when death anxiety Uh, is managed in a mature and effective way, uh, then that increases our sense of awe that life is just awesome. And that in turn, when we're awed by life, that makes us more humble, not self-deprecating. It just makes us acknowledge that we are relatively inconsequential specks of dust in the overall scheme of things. But we're not isolated and disconnected specks of dust we're in fact connected to all that is i like otto rocks point where he says we're temporal representatives of the cosmic primal force english translation we're all we're all descendants of the first thing that was ever alive yeah. and that makes us related to everything that's ever been alive and everything that's now alive and everything that will be alive and when we see it that way it's fine being a speck because you're a speck in the connected to the web of all that is and that's humbling but uplifting at the same time and that in turn fosters a sense of gratitude uh, and Uh, And uh, I'm preoccupied with that right now because any of us that slept in a bed last night and had lunch yesterday, uh, we should be extraordinarily uh, grateful to be alive. And so at the personal level, uh, I think we can and should make great headway coming to terms uh, with our own mortality, uh, noting that when we go in that direction, and existential anxieties are aroused, yeah, we're more apt to become uh, awed and humbled and grateful, uh, you know, rather than narcissistic sociopaths wanting more money and stuff as we're out to kill everybody uh, who looks different than uh, the way that we do, right? But at the same time, uh, we also have to make headway uh, as entire cultures.
1: Yeah. Well let let's talk about uh the particular culture that seems to be
0: Go.
1: yes particularly um responsible for the amount of sort of damage in the world right now. Yeah. Um because this to again to tease out some uh, some of what you're saying. So Death death anxiety sort of uh, propels us. Um, And with experiencing death anxiety, the only way to combat it is to create cultural beliefs that allow us purpose and, and values. Otherwise, we'd all be hiding under our beds all day unable to move. That's right. This is much like what Ajit Varki says. So death, but death awareness demands a sense of self-awareness. Yes. Like there cannot no, be a sense of that one is going to die without one being a one. That's right. Um, And that is exacerbated by individuality. But it seems to me then the part of the problem could be that the cultural beliefs that are um, propounded by Western culture in order to manage our own anxiety is that of individualism. That's correct. And so we are very much propagating the very thing that drives our own death awareness and and anxiety and that seems to be because you said um that um maintenance and culture beliefs is a way of managing death anxiety and it sort of it restores psychological equanimity but what we are seeing all around the world is that this culture that we have exported globally is causing huge psychological distress to everybody so is that because it exacerbates the very thing which we normally use culture to try and manage and get through
0: that would be my view and to mm. be annoying, I, I just call it anal cranial fusion. That we subscribe uh, to a, a world view that we're now inflicting on the world around us. That, ironically, and you you put it uh, in an awesome and eloquent fashion, um, it is a world view created to mitigate death anxiety that has the ironic effect of not doing it very well, and at the same time has created physical conditions that will surely, if left unchecked, uh, render the planet unfit for human habitation. And it comes down uh, to our veneration, almost worship uh, of the individual. Uh, And uh, which, again, turns out uh, to be highly problematic to the individual. Uh, That's what fosters the pervasive sense of alienation and disconnection that pervades the West. Our rates of depression are 10 times higher uh, than they were uh, after World War II. And so getting back to individualism just for a second. Uh, And not to go all like academic-y, but this is important. Everyone in the West, whether we know it or not, are are followers of John Locke, the dead Scottish philosopher, who in 1690, in his second treatise on government, he said, there's no such thing as societies in nature. There's just individuals who pursue their best interests. and Uh, And that in an ideal universe, there wouldn't be societies. There would just be rugged individuals staying alive. And then Locke said that, but the reason that doesn't happen is because if that was the case, we would be in a perpetual state of war. Like if I'm hungry and there's an apple tree uh, a mile away. Well, I could walk a mile and grab an apple, but if somebody I don't know is sitting 10 feet away uh, with an apple that they picked, why don't I just grab a rock and crack their fucking head and grab their apple instead? Uh, Well, I might do that, but that would piss them off and their people may then grab many rocks and pound my family into a pulp. and And that would just lead to an ongoing state of war. So what Locke said is we voluntarily relinquished the freedom that we have in nature in order to join civil society, and the sole function of government is to protect our property. Uh, and we do that by warding off foreign invasions and by maintaining domestic tranquility. And the reason Locke does that, some people propose, is in order to justify his take on private property because Locke says there is no private property in nature, but as an individual, you have the right to survive. And so when I walk over to an apple tree and I pick an apple, well, at first that apple tree belongs to everybody. But the minute I pick the apple, I'm turning common property into my own private property. And then Locke goes on to say, I can have as many apples as I want or need as long as I don't waste them and as long as I don't uh, prevent other people from pursuing their right to property. Uh, And he's like, hey, um, and if we all do that, everybody's going to be better off. Uh, and, uh, And then he says, But everybody's different. He uses the word industry. He's like, some of us have more industry than others. That means we're Mm -hmm. smarter, we're more motivated, we're more effective. Therefore, uh, people are going to have different amounts of stuff. In other words, for Locke, inequality is natural, it's necessary, uh, and it is also desirable. Because in Locke's view of the world, nature that we don't cultivate, he called it just waste. He Mm -hmm. said what makes humans function are great individuals that turn nature into stuff and that all of us are better off uh, because of that. Mm -hmm. Right. So to make a short story long. Uh, This is one of the few ideas in the social sciences that is unambiguously incorrect. In other words, this Mm -hmm. is one of the stupidest, stupidest ideas in the history of claims about human nature. No psychologist or evolutionary types take that seriously. There is no solitary primate. The last solitary primate was like the lemur 60 million years ago. And yet that's what Americans and other folks in the West, they still believe that uh, to this day. And so Margaret Thatcher, uh, on your side of the pond, she said there's no such thing as society. Milton Friedman won a Nobel Prize in America in the last millennium. Saying the same thing, that we just have individuals pursuing uh their own interests. So, my point, getting back to your question, is that this is a world view uh that is based on an erroneous set of assumptions about human nature, and uh has catastrophic psychological as well as ecological effects. It's it's catastrophic psychologically, Uh, as a Harvard philosopher, Michael Sandel, pointed out in a great book, The Tyranny of Merit. He's like, look, we live in societies where we're trying to be good humans, where like everybody has a chance. And so you go out and do your best. And if you don't have uh, as much money uh, as Elon Musk or, or Jeff Bezos, Well, that's because you're stupid and lazy, and we're stupid or lazy. Moreover, we only regard people highly in today's world if you're the absolute best at what you do. In other words, in a meritocracy, if I'm the second richest person in the world, well, I'm a failure. Ditto for every other category. Well, think about that, Michael Sandel says. That means in our world, in every category, N-1 people are are failures. And he's like, oh, wow. Uh, Most of the people in America are either depressed or enraged. And Sandel is like, well, how could it be otherwise? Moreover, in these same cultures we teach our kids uh, to passionately pursue unattainable standards of value. So uh, basically we say to, uh, we'll do this in a gendered way, just to be annoying. We say to males, uh, look, unless your penis is bigger than a phone pole, then you need a shit ton of money. And if you don't have it, it's your fault. Uh, Mm -hmm. And, But the point is, is that there is no economic mobility in the United States. If you're born in poverty, you're going to end up there. You're more likely to get out of poverty in Bangladesh than you are in America. For women, it's even more challenging because now we have like equal rights and so females are expected Uh, to be just as successful as their male counterparts, despite the glass ceiling that prevents them from actually achieving that. Mm -hmm. And then on top of all of that, we have these gendered expectations. If I can't floss my teeth with you, uh, you're too fat. Um, If you're older than 25 or 30, you're too old. And so, wow, here we are living in a world where we're teaching our citizens to strive for that which is unattainable and which is a suicide for psychological despair. Moreover, at the cultural level, uh, we have become victims of uh, a, a system that is ultimately based on the pursuit uh, the infinite pursuit of a worthless abstraction. In other words, hmm. basically, uh, our world um, is based on the idea that our measure of success uh, is uh, is framed in terms of money, uh, uh, gross domestic product or whatever uh, quantitative number we use these days. Uh, and yet, Uh, As they point, as people point out, money has no intrinsic value uh, whatsoever. Uh, You know, it could be a feather, it could be a rock, it could be a coin. uh, And yet, yet, uh, what gives it its value is our mutual consent. All right. Well, here we are. We live in a world. Uh, where, uh, again, speaking from the United States, about a third or so of the children in the United States go to bed hungry. Was it because we don't have enough food? No, we pay farmers not to grow food in order to keep the prices artificially elevated in order to maximize profit. I think even a third grader should recognize, or even a six-year-old, that that's backwards. We have enough reality, but we don't have enough money. Uh, Moreover, uh, we're in a world right now where the planet is melting, uh, and the people who run Earth uh, are pointing out that they would like to fix it, but because it's not profitable. But they are unable to do so. And Max Weber, the sociologist who talked about charismatic leaders arising in times of historical upheaval, he also mused about this in his book about the Protestant work ethic. He said, look, we are driven to pursue profit indefinitely and, and infinitely. Because it, whether we're aware of it or not, it's part of the Protestant worldview that the Judeo-Christian tradition is now primarily reflected in, uh, where uh, you're according to the Protestant theology, uh, God has decided whether you're blessed or damned when you're born. You're either going to heaven or hell, and you don't know it, but it's already been decided. Uh, And the argument is, though, that you kind of want to know what God has in mind for you. And so we can get a hint of God's um, inclinations towards us by how much money and stuff we have while we're here. They call it prosperity theology. And and so the more money and stuff we have, uh, the more that indicates that God is shining his light upon us. And Faber's point is that even people who don't think that they're religious, they're just ardently devoted to maximizing profit, that they're still psychodynamically beholden to that assumption. And that is that uh, stuff equals divine grace equals protection from reality in the service uh, of not dying. But then Weber goes on to say, "Look, at the beginning of the Industrial Revolution, well, it really did make life better for everybody." And I, again, I tell myself and my students, "If you're sitting in a chair, uh, if you have like a metal skillet and stuff, all of our modern conveniences are the result uh, of stuff that happened uh, a mm-hmm. couple of hundred years ago." But then Weber says, "Look, but." But at first, this kind of industrialized and increasingly globalized economy, uh, that the economy worked for humans, and then he said something happened where we've become imprisoned in our own gilded cage, and now we are, as Karl Marx put it, fleshy cogs and a ginormous metal machine where whether we know it or not we're like inebriated hamsters on methamphetamine uh, just sprinting aimlessly on the hamster wheel of life uh, in again mindless pursuit of money and stuff mistaking that for genuine meaningful activity and Weber said i don't think we will stop until the last lump of fossilized coal has been burned and i I was like holy crap that put me metaphorically in need of ptsd intervention for a few years because he saw this coming and here it is or right now you know again on my side of earth we've got uh, uh politicians that are doing everything that they can to make it illegal uh, to address our environmental concerns, uh, and it's the same thing in Europe, like in Amsterdam, uh, in Holland, they want to fly less planes this summer in order to reduce carbon emissions. Now that's the government, all right, but of course the people who fly the planes, uh, they're like, that's not good for business. We want to fly more. Planes, And so to get back to uh, the the point that we started, uh, I'm with the people like Naomi Klein uh, who write books talking about uh, we're at an inflection point. Uh, We have to choose. Is it going to be people or or profit? And Mm -hmm. if we remain devoted uh, to an economic system, uh, that is based on the assumption that the world has infinite resources and that infinite growth uh, is desirable, um, uh, that uh, we're going to be in, in uh, great trouble because that's not a defensible assumption. And, and so, I think, points out, sorry. if we keep going that way, Uh, then people will be eradicated in relatively short order. That's not bad for nature. The jellyfish and the cockroach will be fine, but not great for us. So
1: uh, this is where we stay. Sorry, Sheldon, to interrupt. I think what's interesting in what you're saying here is to take it all the way back to the beginning of this conversation when you talked about Kierkegaard. Yep. And Kierkegaard, Kierkegaard. (laughs) (laughs) And, um... Kierkegaard saying that you know we have an awareness of being here. We are here and we know it. Yeah. It seems to me that actually, actually, there is no real sense of here. Yeah. Um, and that speaks also to this prosperity theology that you were discussing. Yeah. Um, there isn't that because this is what I think about all the time. Like, how can we be so divorced from our environment? How can how can leaders continue to make such t- terrible decisions? Um, that are completely misaligned with what we actually need. There doesn't seem to be a sense of environment, of what we are within an environment. And you were just talking about our economic system and our sort of social organization and the psychology behind that. Well, you know, right now our economic system seems more real than even the planet itself because how we interact with one another is through trading essentially on you know th- with our monetary system i can go into um a store and not speak to the person who is providing me with something i need because there is no need for trust because the interaction is going to be checked and balanced um on a a digital trading platform essentially and so the interaction of this sort of fake, well, fake, this digitized system that represents a relationship becomes more real than the relationship between that person and I because we do not get engage as if we are members of the same community. And that also divorces us from the reality of the environment from which that product comes. So, how do we re embed ourselves in the here?
0: Yeah, brilliant. That's awesome. Uh, play that, what you just said, like 10 times in a row because i think you have summed up perfectly at least in my estimation the ironic condition that we now find ourselves in as human beings who on the one hand have never been more quote connected in principle you know here we are conversing over Mm -hmm. thousands of miles and I do think ultimately that's going to be critical for helping humankind uh, progress personally a- and interpersonally. On the other hand, it, it has reduced us all, whether we're aware of it or not. First of all, we're all victims of the Cartesian dualistic tradition of separating the mind and body. So let me yeah. just start out. Uh, by saying uh, that uh, we in the west uh, are already in trouble this was something that martin heidegger the german existentialist pointed out is that we have a, a really deranged view of people in the west and i like how he put it he's like we talk about human beings where being is a noun and and He's like, yeah, that's because we're passive entities. Descartes, like, I think, therefore I am after he just doubted away our bodies. In other words, the whole Western philosophy is based on the idea that the only thing I can't doubt is that I doubt and that we're essentially thinking things, disembodied minds, surveying the world around us from an exalted vantage point. Well, that's already alienating and disconnecting. Heidegger's point is that that has nothing to do uh, with our the way we actually come into the world. We're hurled into the world, already dynamically engaged with and connected to everyone and everything around us, and we therefore need to understand what it is about the Western way of life uh, that undermines what is in fact our biological inclination and that is to be uber social uber cooperative hyper-friendly creatures Mm -hmm. vis-a-vis the other people that we live with and interact with yeah but herein lies the problem in modernity we live by ourselves and interact with nobody we our world has become so technologically adroit that it has created the impression that we're autonomous individuals who need no one. Uh, if I want something to eat, I yell into my phone and the Amazon drone flies through my window a couple of minutes later. Well, I haven't seen anyone. I haven't talked hmm. to anybody. And here I am enveloped in my virtual world to the point where I'm driven to despair when I go to a restaurant and I see young people at a table pretending to have dinner together. But the fact that they're in physical proximity means nothing when their faces are, are focused on their phone. And then I find out that they're texting and, I, and I'm like, well, who are you texting? They're texting the person across the table. Matt? And I'm like, you know what? Uh, I want now. Uh, it, you know, now I know why Nietzsche said that consciousness is the most calamitous stupidity by which we shall perish someday. We uh-huh. we have uh, become disembodied, disconnected, alienated, isolated individuals, desperately yearning for that which is unattainable. And I do think that part of it is the result uh, of the prevailing technology, noting that technology Mm -hmm. is neither good nor bad uh, and that Mm -hmm. what can Mm -hmm. be used in some circumstances uh, uh, to our benefit has generally become, uh, you know, lobotomizing and emotionally problematic for most of the individuals. And so I like Sylvia Banzo's, a philosopher um, from Italy, uh, but she now practices in the United States. And she has a term, uh, and she calls it embodied wisdom. And yeah, her point is it's time to climb back into the here and now. Uh, and uh, and that that means that we have to be reintegrated with the carcass in which we reside, reconnected uh, to our fellow humans in the context of the natural environment that has spawned us. Uh, and uh, there's a recent book. I'm gonna mess it up. It's called An Inconvenient Apocalypse. Have you heard? Yes. Of-
1: Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm reading it. I've got those guys booked in for an interview. Good.
0: Tell them I love Mm. them. I'm reading that. They're in my course also. And and I I love when they say that we're a species out of context. They're like, Mm. wait a minute. You know, we tend to judge everyone and everything against our world. uh, But our world, uh, you know, giant cosmopolitan societies dependent uh, on... Uh, the aggregations of large surpluses in a hierarchical organization that ensures inequitable uh, outcomes. That uh, they're like that's not the way we were for 99.9 percent of human history. What what we were uh, were groups of about 200 people, big enough to have some specialization, small enough. For us to know each of the people that we're living and working with, and for our lives to unfold in an embodied, interdependent, and interconnected way. All right, now, Jackson and Jensen, uh, the Inconvenient Apocalypse authors, they're very clear. They're not saying we all need to move out of London or Manhattan and, and go back and become hunters and gatherers in small groups, but they are suggesting that we may have to resurrect ourselves as human beings from the bottom up in the context of smaller groups of individuals remembering what it's like to interact uh, with our fellow humans Mm -hmm. Uh, On a daily basis. And again, I don't want to. Well, I don't mind sounding like father time. uh, But I remember the days when before I taught my classes, the students would come in and we would talk to each other. Mm -hmm. Now the students come in with their headphones on, staring at uh, their screens, not even looking at each other they don't even know each other's names because even when we're surrounded uh, by our fellow humans we're behaving uh, as if we're surrounded by six million people or whatever in Tokyo so back to Jackson and Jensen they're like well uh, wait a minute Uh, why not get back to any kind of Groups, be it a local government group or, or even a local football league it's like let's just get back to reality embodied humans uh again interacting with fellow humans directly i, I tell my students throw your phone in the toilet uh, look at a human point both mm-hmm. dry balls in the same direction we need to remember that because I, I I know I'm getting shrill because I am the average American child has their face in a screen more than their face facing other humans yeah, uh, yeah. go out to California to Silicon Valley to the people who invented this technology. Uh, They don't let their kids anywhere near it. They understand Mm -hmm. that it's debilitating psychological heroin that despite uh, its virtues uh, is extraordinarily eviscerating both intellectually as well as emotionally.
1: I think, you know, no wonder we're not experiencing any awe.
0: That's correct. Because we're not
1: experiencing one another. We're not experiencing nature.
0: There you go. That's correct. Mm -hmm. Uh, and the argument and here, I don't want to get too political, except that I think that we need to have to at some point. And so right now in the United States, we're really polarized and, and yeah. uh, there are people and they they're they're like, oh, we it's terrible when people are woke. I don't know if that term is uh, is bandied about on your end of things. Oh,
1: but, yes. By okay. ministers.
0: OK, so uh, and my point and I don't mind being annoying. Is like this idea of being woke has a long history in Western history. Uh, Plato used it in the allegory of the cave, where he described the average person a- as sleeping on the bottom of a dark cave, and he's like, "We, you gotta wake up a- and become enlightened." Uh, you know, then you've got. Freud saying that neurosis is dreaming while awake, implying that we've got to wake up and see things as they are. In Ulysses, uh, James Joyce says, history is a nightmare from which I'm trying to wait. I, Bob Marley, my favorite reggae guy, he, he's like, one he I hit my favorite songs, is wake up and live. And so back to America, uh, where uh, folks in the Republican Party, like in Florida, Governor Ron DeSantis has an anti-woke law. And his lawyer defines woke as recognizing that there are structural factors that produce inequitable outcomes and wanting to do something to remedy that. All right. Think about the absurdity and absurd. Obscen- yeah and the effectiveness uh, of basically making it illegal uh, for people to see things as they are in the service of repairing them. Uh, We now are outlawing books. The state of Missouri this week, uh, their state budget uh, cut all funding for public libraries, zero dollars for reading. And so But we now live in a world where there is extraordinary pressure to keep people lobotomized Mm -hmm. uh, by ensuring that they're too busy, too angry, too afraid uh, to recognize that we are momentarily imprisoned in a way of life that, again, not to be, we don't want to be simple minded. It's a way of life that did make things better for lots of us. Uh, And uh, uh, again, even Karl Marx said, uh, capitalism is great to a point, to the point where we have enough technology uh, to distribute resources uh, in an equitable fashion. And when when you talk to the Inconvenient Apocalypse folks, uh, they will make uh, similar claims uh, on behalf ultimately, uh, of the need uh, to tweak our global economic order. Now, again, this is not uh, to say, oh, we need to uh, eliminate money or that market economies uh, are by their nature uh, problematic. Uh, That's really not the point. The point is that there's no evidence whatsoever Uh, For the claim uh, that unregulated markets where people are encouraged to acquire uh, as much as they want, uh, that that will inevitably make life better for everybody.
1: Well, I mean, even the economists, sorry sorry to yeah. jump in, but even the economists that created these theories called for regulation, Friedman, Hayek, they all said that the market will sometimes have to be regulated.
0: Well, there you go. Like, it's
1: a story that's gotten out of control, really? the unregulated market. So,
0: so, again, awesome. So I, that's what I say to my conservative friends. Why don't you actually read Adam Smith, who said that mm-hmm. there are some things that can't be done for a profit? And he said education... public health, and infrastructure. And he said the government should do that. Hayek, you know, who's considered the biggest proponent of free markets, he said it won't be long till we get to the point where we have so much technology that things that we used to sell, we should be able to give away for free as public goods. Even the most ardent uh, yeah free market capital people they never imagined a situation like we're in now, where people are simultaneously getting richer at the same time that the world is becoming more physically impoverished uh yeah even the most devoted uh capitalists had good intentions, in my opinion, specifically that there will come a time uh, where technological progress uh, is transformed uh, into public good. And yeah, that's where I think we have to go. And that's where I don't see us making as much progress as we ought.
1: Well, I mean, if, to take it right back to your research, if the main drive for people to Advance technologically is to generate profit for themselves yep. in order to manage their own death anxiety through the cultural belief system that we've been you know forced that we've adopted or or propagated um for decades or hundreds of years then then it may, then then we will never get there right we just we just can't get there in this current story there
0: you go uh, I, again, I love how you put it, you're making uh, you're putting it better than I, but yeah, we cannot be deaf denying culturally constructed meat puppets tranquilized by the trivial and have anything good result we need Mm -hmm. to and again i'm what makes me optimistic is i'm we're not uh lobbying for a radical alteration of human nature which is unlikely and perhaps Mm -hmm. even undesirable we're asking for a recalibration and a restoration Uh, as Jackson and Jensen put it in The Inconvenient Apocalypse, we want to just remind ourselves of who we are. We're not rugged individuals singularly devoted to the acquisition of infinite wealth. For most of our history, uh, we are, as I put it earlier, uh, uber-social, hyper-cooperative cultural animals interested just as much in the welfare of our community to find not only in the here and now, but in terms of what things will be like for the generations to come. And so there are lots of extraordinarily productive ways to envision ourselves in the context of the world as it might become if we were to shift towards that kind of view towards life. Yeah,
1: yeah, amazing. Right, Sheldon, I think that's the sort of, Clanger, note that we should that we should end on what an extraordinary trough of information and theory and insight and possibility you've given us today. Thank you so much. My Not final much. question for you is: Who would you like to platform?
0: Yeah, so um, I, mm-hmm. I want to lobby for uh, a rep, well, relative to me, uh, a young professor. When I say young, I think he uh, finished his graduate school work in like 2009. Uh, James mm-hmm. Rowe uh is a, a professor uh, i'm going to screw it up he's at the university of victoria in canada and i believe he's his background is in political science but he also has an awesome background um in buddhism and in existential psychology and, and he wrote he just wrote an amazing book that's about to be published um, th- that it'll be published in a uh, few months, autumn twenty twenty three, and the book is called Radical Mindfulness: Why mm. Transforming Fear of Death Is Politically Vital. A- and it's really, I I, I hope that uh, that you'll contact him and that um he'll agree to hang out because his argument is that. Uh, We've got the existential types like me uh, emphasizing uh, the importance of understanding the pervasive role of death anxiety uh, in life in general. And then you've got all of these other folks uh, working um, uh, in uh, uh, just like working in reality, trying to make the world better. Uh, You know, be it through NGOs or or efforts to get into politics or or even like people that are in like the mindfulness and and Buddhist um, way of things. And James's point is that uh, I think that everybody needs to start to get together and and to exchange ideas that the existential Mm -hmm. types like me. That are trying to help individuals feel better about themselves, let's say like through mindfulness and stuff like that, that we're missing the point unless we also simultaneously recognize that no amount of individual benefit is going to change anything in the absence of wholesale structural reorganization of institutions that have adverse effects on the people within them. And and, but that the people who are actually trying to change those institutions, they don't adequately recognize how tough it is because of the role of death anxiety in making people cling tenaciously to them. And yeah, and it's a lovely book. And it's also making an important point, which is uh yeah we need uh we need to figure out ways just pragmatically uh to foster conversations between uh the people like me that' spent the last forty years pretending to help people by hiding in my office and writing books rather than ever seeing a person. And the people that are out on the streets every day doing good, that there's a lot of benefit uh, to mutual exchanges. And, yeah, I think that that's uh, a fine way of thinking about things. And I, I really enjoyed James's book. So that's what that's who I would recommend.
1: Oh, brilliant. I will definitely contact him. Sheldon, thank you so much for your time.
0: Yep, thank you. It was awesome.
1: If you want to learn more about Sheldon's work, I've put links to everything over on planetcritical.com where you can subscribe to support this podcast and read the weekly essays inspired by each interview. If you liked this episode, leave a review and share it far and wide. If you loved it, support the project with a paid subscription at planetcritical.com. As always, thank you to the Planet Critical community who support the show and make all of this work possible. Thank you all for listening. See you next week.